If you're listening to our program today, you are probably familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If God loved the world that much, doesn't it follow that we should love the world? Yet James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? On today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God, Let's talk about the biblical meaning of the world. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, let's answer that first question. If God so loved the world, shouldn't we love it with the same kind of conviction? I do think we should love it with the same kind of conviction and that, you know, your phrase there, the same kind of conviction, I think that's the key phrase. There's different ways that we use the word love, that all of us use the word love. And um, when God says he loves the world there, he means it in a certain way. And and you you can tell by the context when people use the word love, you can tell what they mean. Somebody might say, I love cheeseburgers. I might say, I love cheeseburgers. I mean, that's something different. That, that means something different than when I say, I love my daughter. I, I love cheeseburgers, not because I'm seeking the best for cheeseburgers, you know, and I want cheeseburgers to be healthy and whole and happy. I seek it because it gives me pleasure and I want to consume it to benefit myself. When I say I love, and that's totally fine. When I say I love my daughter, I, I mean, I, I want to devote my life to making her life better and to training her and raising her. And, and it's totally appropriate. Those are two totally fine ways to use the word, but they mean different things. And when God says in John 3, 16, that he loves the world, what he means is, is that he seeks for its good. He seeks to heal it. He seeks to make it whole. And I, as someone who wants to be a God person, a God follower, uh, who is firmly convinced that God has called him to be on that mission with God to rescue the world, I should love the world in the same way, like you said, in that same way. Okay. So you've You've quite complicated the uh, question very well here. Let's see if we can unpack this. I'm sure that you understand where you're coming from. You've got to help me out. So let's talk about this guy named Demas. He's mentioned in, uh, by Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Paul doesn't seem to be all that impressed with Demas's love of the world. Why? Well, it looks like in that context, he's using the word love there to mean something different than the self-sacrificial love that seeks the benefit. You know, uh, it looks like he means that he's in love. So as as John says in his epistle, uh, the the world is made up of the lust of the flesh and the the pride of life and something else that I can't remember right now. But uh, he's, he's seeking the pleasure that the world has to offer. He's not thinking of the world as a daughter that needs to be lovingly cared for. He's thinking of the world as a cheeseburger that needs to be consumed for his own benefit. And what's happened is, is that his love for cheeseburgers or whatever it is that Demas is in love with, we don't know. But Paul describes it as in love with the world. It's pulled Demas away from Paul. He's abandoned Paul. So his love for something else has trumped his love for Paul. And Paul's been abandoned. And Paul knows that if uh, that if he and his mission has been abandoned, then God and God's mission has been abandoned as well. And that's why he doesn't, it's, that's why the word love there is 
Paul uses it very negatively. So it's possible to love the world the way Demas loves it or love the world the way God loves it. I guess we should love the world the way God loves it. Just in general, do you think most people are Demas on the Demas side of the question or on the God side of the question? Uh, I probably... So- I probably on the Demas side of the question. I, I when you say most people, uh, I, I don't know. I don't have the math, but I would guess that like almost. I would say most people are thoroughly in the Demas camp. All people struggle with disordered loves, loving something too much that we shouldn't love, uh, loving something idolatry. Yes, that's that, that's one way to put it. And all of us struggle with that. Uh, even cheeseburgers, I, that that's a love that could be very. Uh, if I start to seek comfort, capital C comfort in food, which I do, that's a big problem. There's nothing wrong with loving cheeseburgers, but when I mean by loving cheeseburgers, I need cheeseburgers in order to be whole or happy. Then uh, I'm in the Demas camp. I've abandoned God. Um, for cheeseburgers, so it's possible, very, very possible, to love God and love cheeseburgers. But um, as Saint Augustine, he talks about uh, disordered loves in several places. Um, and what he means is, is that it's good to love cheeseburgers, but if you love cheeseburgers more than God, it's wrong. If uh, uh, you know, so you put, put, you know, if you love cheeseburgers more than your family, it's wrong. If you love your family more than God, that's wrong. Uh, and so there's an order to our loves, and it's very, very appropriate to love all these different things. But if you love something more than God, if you love the world more than God, it's wrong. If you love God more than you love the world, loving the world is very appropriate as long as it's ordered properly. Okay, I'm following along with you here, and I'm looking at these various scriptures that comment on this question. John says in his first letter, quote, do not love the world, excuse me, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. That's a, that sounds like an indictment of loving the world. Right. So help me out here. Well, yeah. So with John, John uses the word world in a couple different ways, you mean the? Uh, See, this is the the problem here is that I I understand the cheeseburger thing. If I'm consuming cheeseburgers for my own personal pleasure entirely, and you say well, that's wrong, I understand that. But the world is such an expansive, uh, broad subject that it's right over here, it's wrong over here. It's that's the hard part. Yeah. And the Bible says in some places, love the world. In other places, it says, don't love the world. Right. And I'm confused. Yeah. So, so uh, the world can mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the planet. It doesn't usually mean that. It can mean the people in the world. For, for John especially, the, the Apostle John, uh, St. John, for, for those of you who aren't familiar, he wrote, he was a friend of Jesus, one of his uh, earliest followers, um, wrote one of the Gospels, one of the stories of the lives of Je- one of the lives of Jesus, at the beginning of the New Testament, he also wrote three uh, letters uh, to, to different groups that we have in the New Testament, and he also wrote a book at the end of the Bible called uh, the Revelation. But for, for for John, a lot of times when he uses the word world, he means the evil system 
the prison that the that the people that God made are under. Makes me wish we had two different terms. Well, I was, language always works like this, and you just have to like it's just like the word love. It, you know, it, it works like this, and you just know from the context what he's talking about. Uh, there's so many words that are like this that have different meanings, and you just don't notice them because one, one time somebody said to me, "List all the meanings of the word bank, b a n k, that you know." Well, it's it's all like, what is the word bank? We need a bunch of different words for. Is it the you know? Is it the land next to a river, sloping down to a river? Is it the place where I put my money? Is it uh, is it a verb? Is it what I do when I'm trying to uh, make a basketball shot and I need to use the backboard? Uh, is it a slang term for I can count on something? I can bank on that. Well, it's uh, so many different meanings of the word, and that's that's not even all of them. Uh, you just know from the context. And when you're reading John, and this is, I think this is actually the text where he goes right in and explains what he means by the world, lust of the flesh, uh, pride of life, and then I can't remember the other one. This is a, a bad preparation on my part. But what he means by the world is not the people in the world. It doesn't mean creation. What he means is the system that that controls humanity since the fall, where the lust of the flesh and pride that's what controls us. Self-promotion, self-pleasing, th- these are our ultimate values. And when he says here, when he says, don't love the world, um, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not. And what he means is, is if your highest value is pleasure and self-promotion, then you have separated yourself from God. And he should be your highest pleasure. He doesn't mean, you know, don't love creation, don't love the people. And you, if when, when you're reading John, you can get this. Just like, you, you know, when I'm reading uh, uh, a letter from my grandma and she says, I went to the bank yesterday, I don't instantly think, oh, she went and sat down by the river. She thinks she dro- drove to the bank and put in her, you know, her, her uh, withdrew something from her savings or something. You just know from the context. And I think w- when he says, if, if the love of the world is in you, the love of the Father is not in you. This is what he means. So John says this time in his gospel, and the implication here is that we, are, we Christians, are not of the world. John says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the world hates me. Maybe I should hate the world. In response to that, what do you think? Well, so for, first of all, this is a good example of the way that John uses the word world. When he tells Christians, you aren't of the world, he doesn't mean you're not living in the world now. I mean, we, we clearly are. He doesn't mean that you're somehow like uh, uh, different, a, a different category of creature. Well, what does he mean? He just means that you have been taken out of that by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been taken out of the system that's controlled by pride and by lust of the flesh, self-pleasure. That's an interesting word, system. Yes. Sounds like it's organized. Yeah. Uh, it's turned into an because it's so pervasive. It's like calling breathing organized. Everybody breathes. It's not necessarily that you know nobody gets together and says, hey, just a reminder for this next year, just want to everybody keep on breathing. You don't have to say that. It's just natural. Since the fall, it's become natural for us. And so uh, humans, the systems that they create, uh, whether it's political systems or economic systems, social systems, family systems, uh, 
uh, whatever it is, are almost always controlled by lust, which doesn't just mean sexual desire, like uh, inappropriate sexual desire, like the, the desire for pleasure. Like the, my my love for cheeseburgers can frequently be called a lust. Um, it, it controls the way we think about money and power and relationship, self promotion and pleasure become, and that's the system. That's the system. And uh, John is saying, or Jesus is saying in John's gospel, that you've been taken out of that. You're no longer a part of that. And so anyway, I think your question was, um, so we're supposed to, he says, the world will hate you. If you live not in that system, if you don't play ball, if you sit loose to economic systems or political systems that say promotion is the answer and pleasure is the answer, if you if you say as a Christian, no, Jesus is the answer. So I'm not going to become a tool for you. I'm not going to become a consumer. I'm not going to be dedicated to your system of you know increasing your own power by offering me power in return, or increasing your own pleasure by offering me bits of pleasure in return. I'm not going to do that. You are going to be an outsider. You are going to be hated. Should we hate the world in return? No, absolutely not. We're supposed to love the world like God does. Not love the world like the world does, but love the world like God does. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Is it possible to do a self-evaluation? This is the kind of question where I suspect there's somebody listening to us who is saying, you know, I've never really thought about this, but there are things in the world I I love. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily associate them with God. I love football, for Mm -hmm. example. That's one of my favorite things. And if it were taken away from me, that would make me sad. Right. And then there's another thing and another thing. And pretty soon, I love a lot of things in the world. Yeah. Maybe too many things. Is there a way to do a self-evaluation here and then affect some kind of correction? Well, I think it's helpful to go back to John's uh, paradigm that when he says don't, you know, when he's saying don't love the world, what he's talking about is lust and pride you know, my love for beautiful music or for football or for cheeseburgers are completely appropriate. When it turns to lust and pride, then then it's a problem. Then it becomes a, a disordered love, a love uh, according to the world system. And so to love, but anything, actually, you know, love of family could also become that way. Love of family could be a way, I know lots of people Who's you know they they love their family and of course they love their family but it becomes to be this is a, this is a parent issue. Um, my love for my kids can easily transform into I love what my kids say about me. I love how my kids' success reflects well on me. I love how my kids the, the way they dress and the way they act reflect on who I am and I hate it when their lack of success or their awkwardness, or their bad behavior reflects poorly. I mean, this is why people flip out when their kids, uh, uh, you know, have a tantrum or disrespect them in public, is because they love their kids, yes, genuinely, but their love for their kid has become a matter of lust and pride. Their kids are there. And so um, to always constantly, I think, you know, you ask, is is it possible to self-evaluate? I think it's essential to self-evaluate and to say, are my loves disordered? Am I loving my child more than God? Am I looking for, am I looking for my kids to give me value and status in ways that only God can offer me? Um, 
have I turned my children or, or cheeseburgers or football or beautiful music or whatever it is, have I turned it in a ma- into a matter of pride and lust? Or am I still able, because of my love for God, to love them in a way that's self-sacrificial and, benef- and beneficial for them and can enjoy them purely because they're gifts of God, not because they can build up my pride or satisfy my desires, my lust. And to constantly, and it's always going to be, for, for, for us, it's always going to be an ebb and flow and a back and forth and asking God, God, let my heart praise you. Let me worship you alone and then enjoy your gifts secondarily because they're gifts of you. There's a, a metaphor, I call it a metaphor, in Scripture of the seas and the oceans uh, roiling, the waves, the turmoil, which is a kind of type of the political systems for the peoples all over the earth. Mm-hmm. It never seems to settle, just like the ocean is constantly in turmoil. Yeah. It never seems to settle, and it's discouraging if we if we look at it carefully you come to the i come to the conclusion that i don't know what we can do to overcome this this is it's almost terrifying in some ways in a nuclear age first john says for everyone who has been born of god overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith how do you know when you have finally overcome the world in the context of this seemingly unable to be overcome situation. Yeah. Well, th- this is going to sidetrack us into one of my favorite discussions, which is the meaning of the word faith. Um, so faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So we, we want to, and the, the, I, I love the way you started that question too, because um, in the ancient world, and the Bible picks up on this as an ancient world document, uh, the seas are a symbol of chaos. It's a place of disorder. It's a place of the unknown. And all you know is that frequently horrible things happen there, chaotically, randomly. There are bad creatures that live there that you can't see unless you're in their grass, that sort of thing. And uh, You're starting to scare me. Yeah, well, just don't. We're living in the Midwest here. You're, you're safe. <laughs> I try. I, believe me. Uh at the end of the story, God overcomes this. There's a, a, a spot in Revelation where the, the 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 again super side topic. Let me just say this real quick. We'll move on. Beasts from the sea are conquered, and the sea is done away with forever. That's a metaphor. I, that's not. I don't think that in new creation, God's going to get rid of the oceans, but as as a symbol of chaos, God overcomes it. Um, how can we overcome it? Well, like the text you wrote said that um, you know faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Uh, faith is not we really need to believe that we've overcome. That's kind of the way that sometimes people, Christians, non-Christians, typically think of faith is there's no reason for thinking this, just like you just got to believe. Um, in the Bible, though, faith is shorthand for go to Jesus. Jesus is the one who does this. If you rely on Jesus, he overcomes the world. And so it's just John's way of saying Jesus has overcome the world. Just rely on him. He says it more explicitly, actually, in John 16, where he says, um, in, Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble, you'll have tribulation, but don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. So there's a very ex- explicit. Jesus himself says, I have overcome the world. I've conquered it. And then when you get to John's letter, 
um, he, he says, hey, overcoming the world is possible through faith. And what he means is Jesus has already overcome the world. Go to him. So does that mean that when I look in the newspaper or look on the internet or watch the television, I see the news and another bad thing happened today and the situation that was yesterday is worse today, that I can look at all that stuff and be at peace because Jesus has overcome the world? Yes. Take heart, he says. Specifically, he says, take heart. Uh, Jesus does. So he doesn't say... It's just not random information. He's ex- he's explicitly telling us that he's overcome the world in order that we would take heart, that we would have courage. And th- they're not escapist at all. He's not saying, so just sit back and relax. I mean, there's work to be done, Wh- whatever the issues, you know, political issues like you bring up, Chuck, economic issues, family issues, environmental issues. There's always work to be done, but we never have to be afraid because the chaos does get overcome. The chaos does get ordered because Jesus has promised by his death and resurrection, he's overcome the world. Peace that supplants chaos, at least for the individual, for the believer, is this the peace that passes understanding? Because I'm not sure I still understand. I hear what you're saying, and I can process it, but it's, it's, boy, that's quite a jump to go from almost daily... I don't know, terror is probably too strong a word, but we, we, we live in fear every day from the threats that surround us, whether they're local or whether yeah. they're worldwide. And we would love to be at peace. Right. But that's, that's quite a reach, quite a stretch. Yeah. So, I mean, I heard your words. Right. Yeah. Make it real. So, so there's there's three there's three possible stages there's three possible ways that we could live in, in reaction to this. One is is we could live in the chaos and feel the full weight and fear of the chaos. That's what everybody does. I I was on Twitter this morning. I'm watching it happen in real time. Everybody's freaked out that the world is horrible and the bad guys, whoever that is, it's you know it's fifty percent of the of our culture is bad guys and 50% of us, me and you, Chuck, of course, we're the good guys. Uh, we're always worried about the bad guys. That was, uh, that was, uh, being sarcastic there. That that's one possible. The other possible way is to say we need peace and we need everything, the entire environment around us to be peaceful. That's the way to get peace. That's not going to happen. Now, Jesus promises that he will create a world where everything works right. And in fact, the Hebrew word, um, you know, we talk about peace in the Bible, but the concept behind peace is the is from the Hebrew Bible. The concept is shalom, which means less calm and means more. Everything is proper. Everything's in its proper place. Everything is ordered. Everything is healthy. Everything is whole. The situation that we find ourselves now in is we live in a chaotic world, but we can have peace because we know that God is in charge. Jesus has won the victory by his death and resurrection and ascension, and everything is going to be okay. But a great example, speaking of C, which is uh, 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 good on you for bringing this one up, uh, bringing up that, that, that image. Jesus in the boat during the storm. Uh, this is massive storm going around uh, on the Sea of uh, Gennesaret, and the disciples in the boat are scared. Meanwhile, Jesus is passed out asleep, and they go to him and they say, Hey, you got to wake up. Don't you care that we're all dying here? And he basically says, you guys have, you don't have very much faith, do you? And then he calms the storm. 
Well, see, what Jesus knows is this, is that there's no way he's going to drown in that storm. There's no way that storm can kill him or his friends because he is destined to go to Jerusalem and die and rise from the dead. He's basically bulletproof until the father says, now the hour has come. And we as Christians should have that same sort of attitude. The world's in chaos around us. Politicians, um, advertisers, they're trying to get us to be afraid because they know if they can make us afraid, they can manipulate us. And so what we do, though, is we say, Jesus has overcome the world. I don't have to be, I can react appropriately. I'm not going to ignore the the cultural, whatever's going on in the culture around me, but I don't have to be afraid because Jesus has overcome the world. I can live in the world, but not have the fear that the world wants me to have. Uh, can we take a little side road here? We already took one, so now I'm going to take I'd be one. hypocritical to tell you I, we can't. I, I'm going to take a side road here. I'm, I'm trying to connect dots with what we read here about overcoming the world with your faith and the story that you told about uh, Jesus in the boat. I think in that story, before they get in the boat to cross, I think Jesus says, let us go to the other side. So the word of Christ, or I might even say the word of God is, we're going to the other side. And when the storm comes up, it the implication seems to me that didn't I didn't I say we're going to the other side? What storm? Which is why he was peacefully asleep in the boat, I guess. And I guess he was saying to them, if you had the faith that overcomes the world, you wouldn't be worried about this storm. Is is that valid? I I, th- I definitely think so. And specifically, so in that context, what is the faith that overcomes the world? It's their belief. You see the faith that overcomes this storm right now. What's the faith that overcomes the storm? It's the same thing. The faith that overcomes the storm is the belief that if I'm with Jesus, I'm okay. That as long as this guy's in the boat, asleep or awake, we're going to be fine. There's no way he drowns. That's the faith. He's got a plan. He's going to work his plan. He said we're going to go to the other side. We know that he has to suffer and die. He's... He's he's bulletproof, and that makes us bulletproof too. But they forgot that, or yeah, maybe for sure. they didn't even put those two things together. Yeah, and that's us. Which too. is yeah, which is kind of the way we live. Yeah, we're in the boat. The political storm is happening on my Twitter feed, and I'm like, oh no, Jesus, don't you even care what's going on here? And he says, I got this, little faith guy. I, I've got this. Just if you're with me, it's going to be. Now it doesn't mean that they were they should have just been. Well, let's take a nap too. Like, you know, if you're in the boat in a storm, you're going to do whatever you do to sails or to like, you know, to, to row or whatever it is. But while they're doing all that, they can be confident that God's got this and he's going to be in charge. It almost sounds like Jesus would have liked somebody to stand up in the boat and calm the sea. The Lord said, we're going to the other side, be calm. Now, that sounds a little crazy, but Jesus did ask or tell Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water That's a good example, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm trying to figure out how far this faith can carry us when we're trying to overcome the world and live in peace. Well, to appropriate amounts, Jesus isn't literally telling any of us to get out of any boats. Like next time you go fishing, I wouldn't do it and be like, I'm really going to believe in Jesus. He told Peter to. He doesn't tell me to. If I get out of a boat and he hasn't told me to, I'm going to sink. But you can take that to great lengths. I mean, sometimes we frequently think there's no way that whatever that's going on in the screwed up world is ever going to be resolved in a good way. 
but water can support the weight of a grown man if Jesus says it's going to. And so just to say, Jesus has this and he's got this under control. He can do whatever he wants. He loves to write dramatic stories. And so there's going to be drama because he gets glory out of dramatic stories. He, he, we all praise him and say, that is really amazing. That was really cool what you did, Jesus. He likes that. He wants that because he knows that we're happy. Like we talked about a couple of episodes ago. He knows we're happiest when we are praising him. And so just to live in that reality that with all the chaos going on, whatever whatever's going on in the world, that he's got it, that he's in charge and to, to rest easy in that. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew says, quote, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I don't know what that looked like. I try to picture that in my mind. What do you think Satan showed Jesus? So political systems, the, the, the temptation there is power, right? Is that I'm going to show you all the, the kingdoms and their glory. You know what I read is... I could, and tell me if I'm wrong, I could almost substitute world, just the term world, for the kingdoms of the world. He showed them the world where Satan has some right, control yeah. and influence. This belongs to me, Satan thinks. I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. If. Uh, it, can we make that comparison, the kingdoms of the world, just shorten it down to the world in the context that we've been talking about today? Yeah, this is one. This is what you you know. You you asked for uh, a little more clarity out of our good friend Saint John earlier. Um, this is one I think where he does give us some clarity. He doesn't just say the world because he doesn't. It's not just the people, and it's not just the created environment. It's not just nature. Specifically, it's the 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 political systems, which the way we've been talking about it here. I think that you're right, Chuck. That um, this is what the world frequently is in the Bible is these. These systems controlled by the enemy, uh, lust, uh, desire for power, self-promotion, these are all what's behind these. And Satan is offering Jesus an easy avenue to, to, to get that. You know, you want to be the Messiah? Well, here, I, I can give you power. I can give you glory. I can give you self-promotion beyond your wildest dreams. But for Jesus, he's not there to... Uh, to be co-opted by the system, which all political leaders have been, you know, we we, we like to think of our uh, we like to think of our favorite political leaders as noble and and trustworthy and uh, caring for the citizens, and we like to think of our least political leaders as like evil, but but they're all like tools of the system. They've all uh, been co-opted to some extent by the system, and Jesus is not going to let that happen. He's not going to become a part of the world. He's there to love the world and to die to save the world. And that's how he's going to end up becoming king. He's going to be the, the slain king, the servant king, not the politician king. He's not going to like make fantastic speeches till everybody's convinced that he's right. Not the warrior king. He's not going to lead a massive army and force the, the kingdoms of the world to bow the knee to him at the, you know, at the, 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 at the end of a, um, a spear. He's going to be the kind of king who gives up his life because he loves the world so much to rescue the world, and that's how he's going to rule the world. He has a completely different plan than Satan's plan. So we've talked about the world in the context of systems, political systems, economic systems, social systems, uh, and we've touched on people. Let's talk here at the end of our podcast about people. The Bible says multiple times, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
well, my neighbor, your neighbor is in the world. So can we separate world in the evil sense and and discuss the world as we have from the discussion of dealing with our neighbor, our neighbors who are in the world? Yeah, for sure. Like So again, world in the sense of systems, attitudes that are based on pride and self self uh, aggrandizement, pleasuring, pleasuring yourself as the highest value, gaining pleasure for yourself as the highest value. Um, th- those those systems th- that that way of talking about the world, it's appropriate to say don't love the world. But when we're talking about the people that that Jesus came to die for, absolutely we're to love the world. That's that's loving the world like Jesus loves the world in John three sixteen, which you quoted back at the beginning. God wants us to love the world. He doesn't want you know. God did you know Jesus did not take us out of the world. He, he specifically says in his high priestly prayer in John, he says, I, 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 I'm praying that not that you take them out of the world. I don't want them to be out of the world. I want them to be the light of the world, like he says in the Sermon on the Mount. I want them to be in the world, but not of the world. I want them to be loving the world, representing my love for the world, embodying my love for the world while they live there. But all the time, sitting over against systems that are built on pride and lust. Well, I don't know what your experience is like, but it feels like in my lifetime that the systems, economic, political, social, whatever, are working overtime to get us to hate one another. Yeah. (laughs) When it comes to love your neighbor, nope, not lately anyway, and I guess I know it's, it's always been this way, but it seems to be... Uh, really, in in third gear now, uh, there are people who are just working night and day to get us to hate one another for any reason we can come up with. Just hate each other. Yeah, I, I think we're losing ground. What do you think? Well, I don't know about losing ground. I think that the easy access of information that we have, you know, on the internet and um, uh, satellite communications that allow us to watch. TV and movies. Just and about anything. Anything really. that we want. I think that that's allowed us to tap even deeper into what's what's always been there, which is um, pride and lust and fear, fear of the other. And people who are smart, very smart, have figured out ways that if they can make us afraid, we can – if they make us afraid of group B – they can get us to, to devote resources and time and energy and money into group A. And so what you find frequently is um, uh, a lot of focus in a, most, most groups who are communicating, they focus a lot on the evils of the other group and hardly anybody focuses on what's wrong with my group. How can I, you know, how can I be critical of my own group? That's no fun because that actually gives up power, and it's very not prideful. It's very humble, and it's very not lustful. It's like um, I need to be critical of myself. Not my desire is not to make myself happy, but my desire is to be critical of myself so that I can help myself and my group become better. And we, need, the Christian Church, needs to step to the forefront of groups that are willing to say we're not going to love the world by being critical of ourselves. We're not going to play the games where we try to promote ourselves. 
what we're going to do is we're going to be critical of ourselves and hopefully start to embody the self-sacrificial love for the world that Jesus has. Thank you, Pastor. And thank you for listening to this episode of Craving Answers, Craving God. If you enjoy our podcast, please tell your friends about us and tell us what you think. Just put Craving Answers, Craving God into your search engine and then look for the Contact Us link in the menu at the top of the page. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rathert. <laughs>